0: You know, um, I've estimated in the last seven years, uh, I've probably preached over 70 sermons here. I was the interim pastor for a while and preached a lot. But if I had to say that this is in my top 100 favorite sermons, not going to make the top 100. Pastor Scott knows what he's doing. He's often... Cabo celebrating his 20th anniversary, he cherry picked the first three chapters of Hosea. And oh, yeah, let John go with the judgment and the justice and the holiness and the wrath of God in the next two chapters. Thank you very much, Pastor Scott. He'll be watching this. This will be a lot of fun. So, we're going to have as much fun as we can possibly have in light of the topic, but the topic we're talking about. There's not a whole lot to laugh about. We're going to talk about when leaders fail. Hosea 4 and 5 talk about leaders. Pastor Scott mentioned to you that his heart was grieving because two of the churches that he had served in Chicago had moral and leadership failures. And then as I was preparing this week, in my 41 years of ministry Twenty of them were spent in two different churches, and in both of those large churches that I served, our lead pastor failed, one morally and one in terms of leadership. So, this is a subject that, that comes very close to home, friends. And so, as we move in our passage from Hosea and Gomer and their marriage which is an illustration of what? Of God's relentless pursuit of His people. He goes to addressing Israel in general and the priest, Allah spiritual leaders, in specific. And he goes to make a different application. But the same application he's making ha- has to do with the same truth. God loves you. He's relentlessly pursuing you. But in chapter 4, he makes this hard right turn and he says, he's coming after Israel and the leaders in describing why he used Hosea for the first three chapters is really the setup for the next 11 chapters. And the problem is, is this, as the people, as the priests go, so go the people. They follow the lead of their spiritual leaders. And he says in this text, so go the men the ladies follow. And so ladies, you're going to get a little bit of a pass today, thank goodness, cuz it's hard enough to preach God's holiness and justice. But if I had to call out the ladies, oh man, I might have to pack my bags, right? That's a tough crowd. And so, we're going to look at this and answer the question, what happens when spiritual leaders fail? Heavenly Father, we ask today that you would enlighten our hearts, bring wisdom to the text, may we apply it to our lives personally, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, grab those notes, would you? And we'll take a look at what's going on here. To help you understand the context of the book of Hosea, look at this chart, because what we did is we've set the theme as this, relentless love for a broken bride, or another way of saying it, God's faithful love towards His unfaithful people. Now, the personal side was the first three chapters of Hosea, and that's where we have the agony of an unfaithful mate, and yet we have this adulterous wife, yet a faithful husband. On the national side, that's where we're headed in the next several chapters, right? This is the tragedy of an unfaithful nation. Chapters 4 to 14, you see an adulterous nation, yet a faithful God, and in these three these 11 chapters, you see these three themes repeated over and over again. The nation is guilty, but God is holy. The nation needs judgment. God is just. Nation has hope. God is love. And what happens in these several chapters is there's these five cycles of judgment and restoration. Now, does that sound familiar? Because that is the story of the judges as well, right? Uh, There's just judgment, there's restoration after there's repentance, etc. But the theme is that God, even though he brings judgment for a time, always wants to bring his people back to himself because he loves them. It's just like in a family. There are times where there is tension in your home, but ultimately, if there are kids in this audience, your mom and your dad, they love you. Now, they may not like you for a a little bit, and there's discipline but they have this relentless love for you. By the way, I'm going to be talking about some very specific issues that may not be appropriate for young kids when I get later in this message. So I want to give you a forewarning that you might want younger kids to be somewhere else. I'm just giving you that heads up. And so we see this structure through the book of Hosea. They turn away from God and they're turning away to other gods, little G, and yet the Lord keeps coming after them. And even though they lived, Israel lived a life as if they weren't God's people, they clearly were His people. So the primary application for us today are for those who call yourself Christ followers. One well, of the awkward parts of this message is some of you are in this process of trying to follow Christ. You've not yet made a commitment to Christ. And so you're looking at this, and it may set up kind of in your mind the stereotypical idea about who God is or isn't based on what you do or don't know about God. Now, I want to give you a warning It would be so nice if I just start with chapter four, verse one, just go straight through two chapters and end at the end of chapter five. No, Hosea not only does this to us, but he plays theological pinball. You know what I'm talking about? Pinball machine. He's going to start on one topic, then jump to another, but he comes back to that topic and it's all over the map. And so I'm going to try to help you walk through the passage. You're going to need both chapter 4 and chapter 5 side by side so you can kind of flip back and forth. And so we'll answer this question, what happens when spiritual leaders fail or fall? Chapter 4, verse 4, we'll get started, and then we'll look at verse 9. Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. He's calling out the leader. You shall stumble by day, but the prophet shall also stumble with you by night, verse 9, and it shall be like people, like priests. In other words, the people, just follow the example of the spiritual leader. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. So there's this symbiotic relationship between people in Israel, people in the church, and their priest or their pastors or their elders. And so there's this back and forth thing. In fact, when a spiritual leader falls morally or in a leadership way, it damages the church. And we know that. We experienced it in our own church years ago. And so there's this tension because when we fall, it causes the church angst. When the shepherd falls, the sheep suffer. Now, the flip side of it works too. If there's just rampant things happening in Israel, like which we're going to look at, or things we call sin in the church, well, there's this issue because pastors sometimes don't want to declare the whole counsel of God. This is why my stomach was a bit of a knot because this is not a fun passage to talk about judgment and justice and appeasing God's righteous anger. And so sometimes pastors capitulate uh, trying to please the flock instead of pastoring the flock. I don't want to just please you, I want to pastor you, and that sometimes you have to speak some hard truth. Not always fun, is it? And so bear with me as we go through this. And so we got to look at God's character and its totality. Now I want to put a, a, a little balancing thing up there. Take a look at this, because I think this might bring clarity to us. We have God's character in its totality. On one end extreme, you have His holiness and justice. On the other side, we see His love and compassion. By a vote of hands, how many would like to hear today a sermon about God's holiness and His justice? Wow, that's that's like seven, eight, nine of you, better than the three last hour. How many would like love and compassion? Yeah, come on, raise it Morris. All right. How many of you like both? See, we need both, don't we? In fact, what's going to happen in chapter 4 and 5, the hard part is, is you're going to hear about the spanking, but you don't get to hear about the hug. You got to wait till chapter 14 for that. And so that's the balance. Now, when leaders fall, there are five predictable consequences. This is what's going to happen. Number one, it produces a culture of compromise. Chapter 4, verse 1, and then chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Now, that's primarily directed at the people. Now, go to chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you, the leader. For you have been a snare at Mitzpah. And a net spread upon tabor, and the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. That's to the priests. He says, Hear the word in essence, I got a bone to pick with you. Listen up, this is what I'm about to say. I'm about to bring judgment. Now when I think of judgment, this dates me, so you'll have to be over fifty to know who this is. But who said, Here comes the judge? Flip Wilson. Now Stephanie was helping me put it together like, Who is Flip Wilson? I said, Okay, give me Judge Judy then, all right? We'll go with Judge Judy, all right? But we got, or Judge Wapner or, you know, whoever. Uh, There's so many of those on now. So the bottom line is he's saying God's justice and judgment are going to take center stage over the next several chapters. He's calling them out. He wants a heart of repentance. That's what he's always wanted from you. As a Christ follower who may be in this room today, this is going to be a bit uncomfortable if you are waffling in your faith. If you are not yet a Christ follower, this message isn't exactly for you because you're still trying to figure out where God fits in your life, but it's no mistake who He's addressing here, and that's Israel and the priests, Christians and leaders. Now, here's the deal. What we see in this context is a culture of compromise, And how does that look like? Well, there are some warning signs that compromise is on the horizon, kind of like a tsunami early warning sign out with those buoys out in the ocean. So here's what he says about that. He says in verse 1, chapter 4, there is no faithfulness or steadfastness and no knowledge of God in the land. Let's look at these one by one. First of all, no faithfulness. What happens to us when that happens spiritually? We quit, we give up, we're apathetic. Just as Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea, we are unfaithful to God. But God is faithful, He keeps chasing after us. Now, what was ironic was were things going well economically or poorly in Israel at the time? It's going well. It's like the stock market the last few weeks. Awesome. We're kind of making up for 2018, Lord willing. I just said that, it sounds impressive, like I, I don't really know, but maybe you guys know. Um, but the bottom line is, by all definition, things were prosperous for them, but the religious leaders had compromised, and they had put up idols called Baal, the worship of Baal, B-A-A-L, up in the high places, and the mountains, etc. And the problem is, That had disastrous consequences to Israel, and it has consequences when we don't do what God's called us to do. I won't mention by name those pastors, but my heart is grieving. My heart is grieving about all four of those men. Two of them I knew up close and personal, the two in Chicago I didn't. By the way, there's no joy in Mudville, quote-unquote, by other pastors when our colleagues fall. You know that, right? You know what the predominant emotion I feel? I'm sad. I'm grieved. Because that's a colleague that I looked up to, got inspiration from, learned from and it just reminds us again friends do not put your trust in me or scott or any other person you put your trust in god cuz he's the faithful one you know i'm just an emotional beanbag so you don't know, you know not to like erwin whoa, whoa whoa he's out spinning off he's already tearing up he's not even gotten to his son yet you know bottom line no faithfulness Number two, no love. They were loveless. They were heartless. They were insincere. Gomer just ripped Hosea's heart out by her behavior, and yet Hosea relentlessly pursued her again and again. Doesn't that remind us of what God's love is for us? What's that famous verse in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God loves us in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, He loves us in spite of, not because of. Isn't that good news? Because when we mess up or when we're not messing up, we somehow think it must have to do with how great we are, how good we are, or how not as bad as the next guy, because we, by the way, we all look at other people in the food chain of sinful dysfunction. And as long as you can find someone down, lower on that food chain of sin, you're feeling pretty good about yourself. At least I'm not as bad as, pick your name, right? At least I'm not Hitler. Oh, thanks. Thanks for raising that bar there. At least you're not Hitler, all right? And so there is no love. Now, an interesting side note, Hosea talks about marriage. Malachi talks about parenting and family. And in the original, I talked to my my Hebrew scholar friend, do you know that the minor prophets were written as one scroll? And there are 12 books, Hosea and Malachi are the bookends of the scroll. And it's interesting because he talks about marriage, he talks about parenting, two topics that I think sink our ship oftentimes as Christians. If we don't get it right in the home and the marriage, it often affects everything else in our life. God knows what he's doing when he puts his word together. Now, besides the obvious marital application in terms of no love between Hosea and Goma, there's also going on in the land at that time is no care for those in the land that were less fortunate. The marginalized, the trivialized, the slave. For us, the homeless, the underemployed, the needy person. Because they were more concerned about themselves and their comfort than the care of other people. When your comfort trumps other people's care, there's something wrong with your view of the kind of God. That's not the God that he's called. That's not our God. He cares for the marginalized. Number three is there's no knowledge. Chapter 4, verse 6, and then chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Start with verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me, and since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also forget your children. Now, in the broader context, Israel was supposed to be a light to all the other nations. Remember, they are monotheistic, not polytheistic, right? And so, because they are a light to the nations, they have much more expected of them, and they've drop the ball they fumbled on the goal line so to speak and god has become forgotten he's an afterthought he's pushed to the sideline and he's relegated to insignificance you say how could a spiritual leader forget the law well let's just review it in our own lives how could how theoretically could we as spiritual influencers forget the law well we could say it just doesn't apply to me we're, we're kind of above the law beyond that or maybe we just l- subtly erode by little compromises, subtle compromises in our life, and we let little sins creep into our life just like weeds in the, in the garden, so to speak, of our lives spiritually. It starts small, and I won't get into the illustration, but you can imagine, and how they can grow. Or we just buy wholesale into the culture of our day. That's what Israel did. They bought into the pluralistic society. Back with the Philistines, they bought into what the Philistines were about, etc., etc. And that's why he had the cycle of the judges. But in chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, he goes on to say this, intimating that maybe they don't even know God. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me, for now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. Now, he keeps using the word Ephraim. Remember, that's one of Joseph's sons. Joseph got a double share of the 12 tribes of Egypt. But Ephraim kind of was the lead tribe in the northern kingdom, and so goes Ephraim, so went the rest of the northern kingdom or the relationship of Israel. And so, they weren't doing well, and so, therefore, all of Israel wasn't doing well. And so, there was this vicious cycle of rebellion. And it it begs the question whether these leaders, had they just completely forfeited their faith or did they ever really know them at all? Remember, there's long periods where there's just seemed to be all kinds of confusion going on in Israel. In fact, we know before Christ comes, there's 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. But in this particular case, there were prophets, they were preaching, but the priests were out to lunch, at least some of them. It reminds me today of certain preachers, again, I'm not name-calling, not calling anybody out, but you can watch on TV, and you go, that doesn't seem to ring true. So is there any reason for those in a lost world looking at the confusion of what's in the media, they hear about these things going on with megachurch pastors, and is it any wonder why people who are not yet Christ followers have a bit of a, huh, why would I want to join your club? Because your club sounds screwed up. You guys are messed up. You say one thing and you do another. You say love people, but you judge. And you, you can see how that kind of plays out, right? And so the stakes are high, friends. When a leader falls or a church falls, it has devastating consequences. Number four. Now, this you have to take out of chapter 5, verse 15. There's false promises. Though you play the whore, O Israel, do not let Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor let go to Beth haven and swear not as the Lord lives. Notice, don't make comments like, I swear to God, I promise you this is going to happen. I'm going to make these changes. Uh, don't make oaths according to if the Lord lives. Don't do that kind of stuff. In fact, sometimes leaders try to convince their followers that they've heard from God, and what's the trump card? Well, hey, well, God told me, so you just, you just need to follow. Because God told me, time out, time out. Okay, I'm, you know what's happening now. I'm, I'm going from preaching. Now I'm going to come and meddle just for a little bit, all right? Look at friends. If I can't show you in God's Word, I said, hey, God told me, and it's not in God's Word or it's contradicting God's Word, you need to do what? Time out. Pastor John we need to have a little chat. Now, let's do it in a nice way. First of all, don't fire off a crazy email saying, you've forsaken God, you blasphemous pastor. How about just a conversation to start? Maybe I just misspoke or something. I got a couple verses inverted this last hour. We got those fixed. We're all good. But seriously, if we're not declaring the whole counsel of God or we only slant it the way we want it to read, that's bad. That's bad news. That's why we go through whole books, verse by verse. We're trying not to to skip the hard stuff. And this is the hard stuff. I realize that today. And there's a way to respectfully engage with your leaders, with your elders, with your pastors, with your life group leaders. But it's got to come from God's Word, not just me telling you. It came from God's Word. That's why I am so happy. We've got the front row filled with Bibles open, pens in hand, notes being taken. Oh, that's a grocery list? Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just, just kidding. All right. No knowledge. No false promises. That was all point number one. Didn't leave you much room. Point number two, it promotes conduct that is morally bankrupt. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. Specifically, I'm going to give you eight things. These five are all breaking five of the Ten Commandments or violations of the Ten Commandments. Kind of eight indicators of what was gone south there. Now, just write this down. We don't have time to cover it. Write down 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Read that in context with this and then look at our culture to say and see if you don't find similarities, all right? First one, swearing, commandment number three, Exodus 20, verse seven, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Little pet peeve, that's why I get a little nervous when I hear some of you say, oh my God, it's on the borderline of maybe swearing. I I just don't, don't do that and don't do the other, which I'm gonna say where you use God's name in vain. Don't do that. It's unbefitting of the gospel. Lying. Commandment number nine, Exodus 20, 16. You shall not bear false witness. By the way, most of us would say we're not flat-out liars, but we shade the truth or we don't tell the whole truth. Let me give you an illustration. When you are late to getting to church, oh boy, and you blame it on traffic instead of not getting out of the house on time. And the worst atrocity is when you blame it on your kids or, that spouse you gave me, Lord. That sounds like Genesis. I was ready. I was in the car. I was waiting. And maybe that's all true. Change the clocks. Do something. Lying. Number three, killing. That's command number six. You shall not murder. Exodus twenty thirteen. Stealing. Commandment number eight, you shall not steal. Verse 15 of Exodus 20. Now, how did the priest steal? Well, let's talk about this a little bit. How was stealing a part of the show, so to speak? In the Old Testament, we had what we called the sacrificial system, right? Before Christ the Messiah, the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, what went on back in the Old Testament? What did they do to prepare their hearts to worship God? What did they do? They had the Day of Atonement. They had all these different uh, Feast of Tabernacles, Pentecost, Passover especially that one. What did they do? They had to do what? Sacrifice Sacrifice what? Animals. Now, just any kind of animal? No special animals. How special were they? No blemish. Where do you find the non-blemished sheep? Well, people raised them near where they had to go and sacrifice, and it was a business for them. By the way, sidebar, Luke 2, those shepherds in the field are probably raising the sheep that will be slaughtered And ultimately, the Lamb of God, Jesus, was the final, quote, sheep to be slaughtered. Now, they had to buy the sheep. That's bad enough because, whether do you think the prices were low or high? They double them. It was worse than a fire, Woolsey Fire rental house right now. I'm telling you, it's crazy what's going on out there with people jacking up prices for houses. In the same way, it, it was it was crazy what the exorbitant prices they would charge. Now that wasn't the only problem. Could they just, you know, give them a $20 bill or some denarii and say, "Hey, I'm going to buy my sheep." Uh-uh. You had to have a special kind of currency only transacted as part of the sacrificial process, and you had to exchange your coin, your denarii for a special coin. Now what's the problem with that? Did anybody make money on that? Who? The money changers. Does that help you understand why Jesus is so incensed about what's going on in the house of worship? There's bartering and trading for the cost of the animal, and then there's barter and trading on the cost of of exchanging the money, and it was all a sham, and people were making money off of these poor people. And so when he says the people, or the priests here, look at verses 7 and 8, look at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 4, the more they increased, The more they sinned against me, I will change their glory into shame. They feed, talking about the priest, on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. In other words, it made money for them if the people were sinning, and the more they sinned, the more they could have sacrifice, et cetera, et cetera. And you could see why Hosea says, this is a problem. If we start instituting animal sacrifice, we're in problem next week, right? We're not doing that. But, you know, all kidding aside, we have some very tight financial procedures here. And I want to encourage you that this church is well managed. We have a checks and balances. The guy who writes the checks, Josh, can't sign the checks. The guys who sign the checks can't write the checks. When we take the offering, two ushers go and they put that offering in the drop box when the counters, and some of you guys are the counters in the church, when they count, they don't count by themselves. We have two involved in that process. And knock on wood, but we've set up parameters that if we follow our own parameters, there won't be financial mismanagement at this church. Praise the Lord. Good men set that up years ago. Number five, the fifth commandment that was broken. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery, Exodus twenty fourteen. And then he goes on to verse 14, and he says this, chapter 4, verse 14, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Ladies, is this interesting? He's holding the men to a higher standard because the men were visiting temple prostitutes. And he kind of gave a little bit of a pass to the prostitutes who were outside and doing their own, quote, business. And he's calling the men out. Now, this is where I said it's going to be a little awkward, so I'm just going to talk straight, parents. When I looked up the whole sex trafficking thing, it turns your stomach. There's estimated about 18,000, mostly women... Entry ages at age 13 that are trafficked in the U.S. alone. Top three of the 13 cities are L.A., San Francisco, and San Diego. And if it wasn't enough to look up those statistics, there's over 800,000 to a million people who are trafficked, not just sexually, but in forced slave labor worldwide. If you've been paying attention to the news, there's another famous person in the last two days, an NFL owner who was arrested for just that in a place in Florida. I, I get no, no happiness in talking about this. It's the evidence of depravity a society that's gone south. Sixth one, idolatry. In other words, setting up false gods. You see that in chapter 4, verse 12 through 13, in 17 and in 19. Let me read sections of that. Verse 12: My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff to give them oracles, wooden idols. Down to verse 13: They sacrifice on tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills. In other words, they set up uh, uh, idols and and uh, sacrifice to Baal. Verse 17: Ephraim is joined to idols. So idolatry. Now, for most of us, you're saying, okay, mm, that's not such a big deal for us because there's There's really no idols of Baal here at ABF. We have other idols though, don't we? What are some of our idols in our culture, maybe even in our church? The idol of what? Wealth. Another idol might be, don't say it, whatever. Sports. Sports. Fitness. Celebrities. Wealth. Fame. Fortune. We got all kinds of little idols. In our lives, power. But let me give you a little warning about our little false idols. Number one, ultimately, an idol can be, for many of us, just substituting good things and settling for good things instead of waiting for the best things that God has for you in your life. So, an idol isn't always those things you want and aspire to. Another kind of idol is the idol that I'm wrestling with. Because I sometimes think there are idols in your life that are surfaced, not because you're grasping for them, because they are described in what you're fearing about what might happen in your life. Because you're clinging so hard to something and your fear of losing it or letting it go has become an artificial idol in your life. I thought I could get away from another illustration about the money pit house, but it happened again. I got cracks in the walls after we already firmed up the foundation, and they're big cracks. Is it just settling? I don't know. But my heart goes pitter-patter, and I'm wondering, Lord, did I sink all this money to a house that is sinking sand? Oh, sounds like a song. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus. And so, I don't want a house to be my idol. I don't want my retirement account to be my idol. I don't want my kids to be an idol. I don't want my spouse, who I love dearly, to become an idol. Don't substitute the good for God's best in your life, friends. Number seven, drunkenness. Chapter four, verse 10 and 11, and then also in verse 18, they shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but shall but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away understanding. Get that? In other words, when you get drunk, you don't know what's happened, right? When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. This is not rocket science, friends. When you consume so much alcohol that you're not aware of your surroundings, there's a direct correlation between sexual immorality and drunkenness. We don't think clearly. And that's why men and women wake up the next morning and go, what happened? And unfortunately, over the last 41 years, some of the saddest conversations are those who've come to my office because in a night, a one-night stand, someone got pregnant or someone got somebody else pregnant, and now instant daddy or mommy nine months later. It's interesting, you think, that's not a big deal with pastors and leaders today, but a very famous pastor, again, I won't mention, back in 2016, lost his ministry, multi-site, 14,000 people in South Carolina, because he was drinking too much, and his elders said, hey, this has got to stop. Now, let me ask you something. When kids drink, I'm talking about high school kids. When high school kids drink, why do they drink to get drunk? When they get drunk, what, or they drink too much, what is that all about for them, generally speaking? They want to what? They want to fit in. They want to be popular. They want to be accepted. When an adult drinks to excess, what's often behind that? Hmm? To forget. One for pleasure, one for pain management. One to fit in. One to manage the heartache in their soul. Can I say this kindly? Some of you in this room are anesthetizing your pain. Maybe it's not quite drunkenness, because now <sniffs> is legal, so you can anesthetize differently. But there's an ache in your heart. There's a woundedness in your soul. There's a deep-down despair that somehow won't go away, and you just want it to all end. You want to forget. My son went through a horrible divorce, horrible. She left him the love of his life. Never had an issue with this, ever. He's drinking to numb the pain. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And here's what you don't know about ABF. This is a safe place for those of you who are in that place. Because you're not going to find me pointing a finger at you and say, just stop it. What you're going to find is a place where we can put our arms around you and say, you need some help. We're going to walk with you, not reject you. The pain is real. So how do we come alongside wounded people? We show them the love of Jesus. Amen? We can't shoot our walking wounded. And oftentimes, I find it in marriages, You're not getting along, and alcohol is the solution to numb your pain for what's going on in your marriage. Eighth, arrogance reflected in stubbornness. Chapter 5, verse 5, and chapter 4, verse 16. Let me start with chapter 4, verse 16. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. How do you like that, you stubborn cow? Huh? i like to be labeled a stubborn cow? Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? How about chapter 5, verse 5? The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah shall also stumble with them. In other words, it's going to take the whole group down. And by the way, they're not fooling anybody. Look at chapter 5, verse 3. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Who are we trying to fool? When there is arrogance, there are problems. When leaders fall morally, almost always there's an arrogance or pride issue attached somewhere in the, in the mix. If you, if you dig down a little deeper, there's this arrogance. I don't want to be arrogant. I don't want to be, I don't want, Sky. I know, we don't want it that. And I think God provides just enough bumps in our spiritual road for both of us to remind us that, hey, He's in charge, we're not, stay humble, do what God's called you to do. But when a culture is morally bankrupt, there's a domino effect. Look at verse 3 of chapter 4. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. So there's some connection oftentimes with how a a nation does, spiritually, and with a moral collapse as it relates to environmental issues. Don't know how to explain it. Just know that it happens. Now we're going to go fast, the next three. Number three, God steps aside for a time to let us suffer the consequences of our choices. That's chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. And then I'll get to chapter 5, verse 15. With their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find Him. He has withdrawn from them. Verse 7, they have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have born alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. By the way, it's for a time. Note that. It's not permanent. Christ follower who's walked away from the Lord in this room today, here's your hope. Deuteronomy 31.8, write it down. I will never leave or forsake you. His relentless pursuit of you is the great story of redemption. He's not given up on you. Now, we believe theologically, by the way, if you're a true Christ follower that you've made a genuine commitment to Jesus Christ, trusting in God alone, Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, that you cannot lose your salvation or your eternal security. We believe some churches teach that. We don't teach that. We believe God's Word clearly says if there is a genuine profession of faith, you cannot lose your salvation. So he can't be talking about losing your salvation in this passage. It's an Old Testament passage, but he's talking about consequences for bad behavior that is far from God. Now, why does God withdraw for a time? What is He about when He's waiting on you? Look at chapter 5, verse 15. I will return again to my place until... In other words, I'm going to go back. I'm waiting for you, my place. Remember, I go to prepare a place for you, that place. I think it's heaven. Until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress, then they will earnestly seek me. So there's two parts to this repentance. One is acknowledge your guilt. Own your stuff. It's hard. Own it. And then seek Him fully, not partially, not half-baked, 100%. God, I need you. I can't do this on my own. Number four, fourth consequence. It pushes God to bring judgment and discipline on His children. Chapter 5 Verses 8 through 11. We'll look at verse 9 and and first. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. Go down to verse 11. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth. Listen, God doesn't relish judgment on his people, but he does need justice. And He disciplines those He loves. He loves you. Now, here's another little problem that's come up in our culture just in the last three weeks when you heard about the nutcases from Westboro, Kansas, who came to picket at T.O. High School and at Pepperdine University, alleging that God was the one who brought the shooter to kill those innocent people. There is no other word to say that is messed up. And if you are, are in this audience today, and you're trying to figure out where God is and what Christ means, and then you hear that and you e- equal that with Christian, it is no wonder you go, uh, I really don't want to be in your club because you guys are messed up. Because if that's what they believe, I don't want any part of that. And you know what? Neither do I, and neither do you. Right? <sighs> you see, we do want justice, right? We, we, we believe, we already said that, God's holy and just, loving compassion. Everybody who has suffered an injustice does believe in justice, and that's the whole counsel of God. Do you think Jewish families who are descendants of the Holocaust wish there was justice for Hitler? Six million times over. You want justice for your daughter who was raped? You want justice because your investment broker stole your entire life savings that you invested with him in a Ponzi scheme? You want justice because your best friend cheated with your wife and she left you? You want justice because your coworker took all the credit for your ideas and he got the promotion and you didn't. Or even, you want justice because the student who stole the answers to the final got an A and you got a C because you didn't cheat. We all want justice. Let's, let's be clear about that. God wants justice. And so God ultimately, though, is in redeeming His people, and Hosea is the example of that in his relationship with Gomer. And Hosea is a a type of Christ pictured as the loving, faithful redeemer of a sinful humanity. And number five, we look to false deliverers to rescue us. Chapter 5, verses 12 to 14, Then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you, Hosea says, or heal your wound then go down to verse 14, I will carry you off and no one shall rescue you. It's hard to believe that Israel thought in any way, shape, or form that the Assyrians were the answer to the moral problem of that day. What happens just a few years later after this is written? This is in chapter five, just uh, four and five. They think they wrote this somewhere around, you know, in the 700s. In 722 B.C., Assyrians wipe Israel off to face the planet practically. And a couple hundred years later, the southern kingdom goes to Babylon in 586. Other nations aren't going to be the answer for Israel's dilemma. You know what the answer is? Psalm 39 7. And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? My only hope is in you. That's where our hope is, friends. Oh, tough couple of chapters this morning, huh? God's holiness and justice is love and compassion. Christian, if you're in this audience today and you're running from God or you're anesthetizing your pain or you've lost your first love, could you hear this? God's coming after you not with a whip, he's coming with his love saying, I want you back, please come home. If you don't yet know the Jesus that I talk about and Scott talks about, it's time for a coffee. It's time for a long conversation about the true lover of your soul, the one that will make your life complete. But since this is a message about leaders and failure and falling, I wanna pray for our leaders. I want our elders, there's two of them in our room right now. Those two elders, stand up. Gary Rafferty, Dave Huners. All the rest of our staff are gone except for Stephanie. So Stephanie, you're gonna represent all the staff. Would you come out from behind the computer there and stand in the back if she's back there? She's hiding from me. She hates this. But we're gonna lay hands on these leaders right now. And so wherever you're at in the room, would you just come up, stand around these guys, stand around Stephanie, and literally, I want you to put your hands on their shoulders. I don't, anywhere in the room, move and get around these guys and get around Stephanie. Get around our staff and our elders. By the way, we've done this in every service, so every elder has been prayed for. Oh boy, and then, yeah, thank you, and then, Some can stand without disturbing Chad and Erica. Get behind them too, all right? And um, we're going to pray. We're going to pay for God's hand of protection on this church and on our leaders. Because as the leaders go, so goes the church. And so would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray right now, and even his hands are on my shoulders, and hands are on the shoulders of our elders and our staff. Lord, would you protect us? Would you put a hedge of protection around us? Don't let me trifle with the Word of God. Don't let Pastor Scott mail it in. Don't let Josh or Chris just take their ministries for granted. Don't let Nancy or Stephanie or Chad or Eric or anybody on our team. Don't let them fall. Our hearts are knit together. We wanna love you, we wanna serve you. Don't let us compromise. Don't let the allure of our culture snare us. Don't let us erode the confidence of our people by walking away hold on to me, Lord. I'm so grateful that my hope is in you, and I trust you, and I I grab onto that hope, and I thank you for these people. They're so faithful. Thank you that they're an example to me, not a judgment or warning to me, because you've been faithful all these years. And so, Lord, we give this church and these leaders to you again one more time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, that's the way to end those two chapters. Because there is hope. There is healing. God loves you like crazy. And he wants to put his healing hand on your life today. We've got people up here to pray. Let's talk. Let's continue the conversation. Have a great day. God bless.